Welcome to another episode of the Father Ted Talk, broadcast here at the National Shrine of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Every October, the Seton Shrine hosts a powerful faith drama called Back from the Dead. In these cemetery walks, you will encounter saints who come back to life with life-saving messages. Learn more at satanshrine.org. Now here's Father Ted. We have this gospel today, which is an allegory of the vineyard, the vineyard which represents, which stands for the nation of Israel. Just like we heard in the first reading, Isaiah used the same image. In the psalm as well said very explicitly, the vineyard is the house of the Lord, is the house of Israel. And in this gospel passage, each and every one of these details has a different meaning. So you've got the owner of the vineyard, who is God, giving his vineyard to some tenants, the nation of Israel, and then he had uh, equipped it. He didn't just give them the land, but he'd actually planted the vineyard, he had built a tower, put a hedge around it, a wine press, and so he had not just given the people certain gifts, but he had blessed them abundantly. And all these blessings, they stand for the blessings that the nation Israel had received from God in the Old Testament. So the liberation from slavery in Egypt, the promised land, the covenant, the commandments, all these different gifts that Yahweh, the Lord God, bestowed upon the nation of Israel are represented by these different features of the vineyard. But yet, despite him doing so much for them, when he shows up asking for what he's owed, you know, you guys are the tenants, you should pay rent, they reject him. They reject the messengers who stand for the prophets, and they kill them. He sends the son, they kill him as well. And remember, Jesus pronounced this parable less than a fortnight before his own passion and death. And as a result of this, the parable today ends with our Lord saying, the vineyard will be taken from you. And that prophecy came true in the year 70 A.D. when the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans and the temple was wiped out. But it also says it will be given to somebody else. So all these blessings, all these good things that I was giving to you, somebody else is going to get them. We are the recipients of those blessings. We are the other group to us, the new Israel, the church, of Christ's, we have been bestowed, we have, been, we have received all these blessings. But it's not ours regardless of what happens. It's ours so long as we continue to produce fruit. And so we have to look and see, okay, what went wrong with this first group of tenants so that we don't fall into the same conundrum, the same situation? What was the sin of these first tenants, the nation of Israel. The sin of these tenants was that they wanted basically to be the owners and not the stewards of the Lord's vineyard. They didn't want to have a God over them. They wanted to be gods themselves. They didn't want to have to obey or heed anybody else's voice. They wanted to determine what they were going to do for themselves without any kind of oversight. They wanted to be their own masters. They wanted to set themselves up in opposition to God. That great English apologist, uh, C.S. Lewis, he said that the devil is always trying to make us behave like little children on their worst of days, 
claiming everything for our own with that one little word, mine. This is my job, my work, my toy, my activity, my Sunday. Therefore, God, you don't have the right to ask me for it because it's mine. It's not, the very, it's not a very Christ-like, not a very Christian way of thinking about things. But this same kind of mentality is very often used in some serious public issues that our nation is confronting. On this Respect Life Sunday, we can see how the devil has inserted this line, mine, this word, into the notion, into the situations of abortion and euthanasia. Pro-abortion advocates will often have the slogan, my body, my choice. And first of all, it's not their body, it's their child's body. And second of all, their body isn't theirs either. They are the stewards of their own lives. Just like we are the stewards of the earth, we don't own the earth, we can't just do whatever we want with the planet, we are called to care for it, so too our own lives don't belong to us. It's not up to us. We are not the masters of our life and our death. But once the devil does insert this mentality of it's mine, therefore I do with it what I want, get away from me, you can't touch this, once that mentality comes into this realm, we have these disastrous consequences. There are 60 million consequences which have taken place since Roe versus Wade in 1973. At the end of the parable, it talked about how the tenants, they took the son, they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Every time an abortion takes place, a son or a daughter of God is taken from the vineyard of their mother's womb and they are killed outside. And we see the same diabolic excuse at work among those who are pushing for euthanasia, assisted suicide. People say that it's my life. I determine when it ends. But again, it's not their life. They are stewards, not owners. Just two weeks ago, on September 22nd, uh, the Vatican released a new document condemning euthanasia with its strongest language up to date. Uh, it called, it describes euthanasia as an intrinsic evil, a crime, and an act of homicide. It tells healthcare professionals that they need to opt out of cooperating with such practices if they are in a state and an institution which would ever carry them out. And this is in something especially important for us to keep in mind uh, in election season. It identifies, the document from the Vatican, identifies lawmakers who approve of legislation allowing euthanasia or assisted suicide as being, quote, accomplices of a grave sin that others will execute. So, euthanasia is not universally legalized in America yet, but there are nine states which allow it under some form, and Washington, D.C. as well. And so when we are preparing to vote, we need to make sure we know where our candidate stands with regard to this intrinsic evil, this crime, this act of homicide. So with these tragedies in mind, let's, keep, let's, let's recall how Jesus ends today's parable. He told his Jewish audience that the kingdom was going to be taken from them and given to somebody else who would bear fruit. We have received the vineyard. It is up to us to produce fruits, the fruits of good works. And St. Paul tells us two things that that's going to require in the second reading today. He told the Philippians, first of all, 
They need to think about praiseworthy things, excellent things, blessed things, virtuous things. And then they need to put into practice what they've seen him doing. Thinking and doing, those two things. Those are the two ways in which we are going to be producing good fruits. So first of all, we have to think correctly. And yes, the sanctity of life from conception to natural death has always been taught by the church. But sometimes there are Catholics who will be confused about the situation because of the scandal of prominent Catholic politicians who are against this. Or perhaps there is confusion because of the failure of the church hierarchy to correct these Catholic politicians who take such stands which are so drastically opposed to Catholic teaching. As if you could have the idea that something was wrong but not actually act as if it were wrong. You just imagine anybody saying, I believe racism is wrong, but who am I to impose my beliefs upon somebody else? You're free to be a racist if you want. It's just so counterintuitive, we don't even imagine what that situation would look like. Those who support abortion, they don't want to think what it's really about. They try and keep people in the dark about it as well. That's one of the key tactics of the devil. He wants us to be in the dark. Christ is the light of the world. He's the one who brings truth. The devil brings confusion and doubt. So the supporters of abortion, they oppose those laws that give women a chance to see an ultrasound of their baby before choosing to end its life. And even though there is clear scientific evidence that the unborn child feels pain at the moment of abortion, they want to keep that under wraps as well. And since the 60s, they've tried to use this misleading language to dehumanize the child in the mother's womb. And so they use terms such as a clump of cells, or fetus, or potential human life. Because when you dehumanize somebody, when you talk about a human being as if it wasn't a human being, as if it wasn't a person, it's a lot easier to do evil to it, to him or to her. So, for example, slaves are often described in terms of livestock. The Jews, by the Nazis, were um, denominated as vermin. And babies in their mother's wombs are described as clumps of cells. And so the, counteract, the, way, to, the way to counteract this, we see it all the time, pro-life pro advertising, what does it do? It just tells us what's going on inside the womb. It shows us that there's a heartbeat. It shows us about fingerprints. It shows us how the child is developing. Without even trying to, the Field Museum out in Chicago, it has this uh, exhibit which describes, which lays out the development of the human embryo from the point of conception to nine months, the uh, full development. And it's not as if they're trying to be pro-life, but you can't help but look at the exhibit, like stage by stage, like the baby developing week by week until it finally is fully developed to realize, oh, this is a human being all from the get-go. It's not as if there's a drastic change. It's not as if you've got like a, mo a little monster on your hands and then all of a sudden, four months and two weeks in, you've got a human being. If we just can see what's happening in the womb, it's so clearly a human life. But along with thinking in accordance with the truth, and along with thinking that abortion is always an evil and euthanasia as well, we have to act in accordance with this truth. It's not enough for us to simply be in the church and say, yes, abortion is wrong. We've got to do something. We have to be people of integrity. We have to be individuals whose lives correspond with the beliefs that they hold. We do not want to be hypocrites. We do not want to say one thing and think another thing. 
We don't want to think one thing, rather, and do something else. Because every child bears Jesus' image and likeness, each of us has a mandate, Pope Francis said, to be witnesses and diffusers of the culture of life. So what are the two ways we do this? So we already talked about thinking the right way. What's the things that, what are the things we do? First of all, we pray. This is not a mere human battle. And remember, we've got God on our side. God didn't make a human being in the womb of his mother for any other reason than for that human being to live. He wants, he's on the side of life. He is on our side. And so like St. Paul told us in the second reading, let us lift up our prayers and petitions to God without any anxiety in our hearts. So first and foremost, we pray. We pray for pregnant women. We pray for those who have made the tragic choice. We pray for those who support the abortion business that they might convert. And second of all, we cooperate with that grace. So we pray, but we also do stuff externally. Perhaps we can support people and organizations that advance the cause of life. You know, maybe financially, maybe by volunteering. Here in Emmitsburg, we have the Contocton Pregnancy Center. You could always use a hand. And also, something else to do, our voting should be in keeping with our beliefs on abortion. None of us would ever, believe, would ever vote for a candidate that supports spousal or child abuse. None of us would ever vote for an anti-Semite or for a KKK leader who believes that individuals of a different skin color should be lynched. So how can we ever vote for someone who thinks that people who are older, more developed, politically stronger can determine when to end the lives of somebody who is younger, weaker, more vulnerable? That is precisely what so many Catholics do. Catholics who would never vote for a racist or a spousal abuser or anti-Semites all the time are voting for people who support the taking of the life in the womb. Our country cannot continue to survive if it continues to allow the taking of the lives of the next generation. Why does America even have a birth rate which is stable? because people are coming from outside the country. Why is it that we have not simply received the, like, what is due to us for this crime against humanity? Maybe because people are praying to hold off the wrath of God, the justice of God, we can say. Maybe that's why the vineyard hasn't yet been taken from us. God wants fruit. He is patient, but he doesn't wait forever. Jesus reiterates the same thing in the gospel. If we do not produce fruit, it will be taken away from us. At times, things are not always what they seem. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be receiving a post. It's not going to seem like Jesus Christ. And when you first look at a newly conceived child in the womb, it doesn't always have the exact appearance of being a human being. To recognize the former, Christ in the host takes faith. To recognize the latter, the human being in the womb, takes a little bit of logic. But in loving him, Christ, in his more humble of appearances, in lo by loving Christ in the Eucharist, we will be able to love him and others, even in those smallest of human beings, in the embryo in the mother's womb. Let's ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for us.
that we may grow in an affective love for those for Christ as well as all of those brothers and sisters of ours who are still in the womb.